Today's sermon is entitled, The Test. The Test. And just hearing that word may bring up distressing memories of taking tests back in school. Did anyone else get test anxiety? Yeah, like the night before, you were nervous, you couldn't sleep. The day of, you couldn't eat. You second-guessed every question, so you just ended up bubbling in the letter C over and over and over again. Right? It's always C. You kids and students, you're still in that world, and one day you will be very relieved when you no longer have to take final exams. But you will find that there is another sort of test in life that we never really grow past. It's the kind of test we also call a trial. Here's how the dictionary defines the kind of test I'm talking about today. It's an event or situation that reveals the strength or quality of someone or something by putting them under strain. We face these tests in our jobs, in our relationships, in our finances, in all kinds of ways. We, we face a difficult challenge and we find out what we're made of. God often uses these sorts of trials or tests to, to teach us. It's not so much like a pass or fail kind of test, but it's more of an exposing of our hearts and who we trust in. More than anything else, it seems, a test can show us who we really are. And that's what we're going to see today in the life of Jesus. Let's remember Luke's goal of writing his gospel account. He wants us to have certainty of who Jesus is, why he came, and what he did. That's why he carefully investigated the life of Christ, uh, interviewing eyewitnesses, researching the facts, and compiling this narrative. The goal is to show us the person of Jesus. And we've seen that so far through the miraculous birth of Christ, through John the Baptist's ministry of preparing the way. We saw it at Jesus' baptism and then in his genealogy. All of this is pointing us to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But what will we discover about Jesus when he faces the biggest test and trial of his life thus far? What will we learn about him when he comes face to face with his greatest enemy? And what does that moment mean for us today? Well, let's look at that by starting out with our passage. Let's read it and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Look with me at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let's start with the situation that Jesus is in here. He's 30 years old. He's just beginning his ministry. He's had his first public appearance at his baptism where he was confirmed by God the Father and God the Son, or God the Spirit. And right after that, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he wasn't, you know, going on some long camping trip or taking a big hike in the mountains. No, Luke tells us that Jesus was actually led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. In other words, God put Jesus in this situation. He sent him there for a purpose, to put him through this difficult test so that we could see who he really is. What did Jesus do for those 40 days? He abstained from food or what we call fasting. That meant he was spending time with his father in prayer. And this is something Luke shows us that Jesus did often. He retreats to spend time with God even though he is God. He, he prioritizes this quiet alone time with his father. And it's while he's out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days that he is tempted by the devil himself. The devil has many titles in the Bible. We know him as the serpent, Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, father of lies, Beelzebul, the evil one, the enemy, the adversary, a murderer, an accuser, a roaring lion, and the ruler of this world. And we need to understand, first off, that Satan is real. He's not a mythological creature. He's not a little man, red man on your shoulder with horns and a pitchfork. He's not a cartoon character. Sometimes we even get the idea that Satan is like the equal opposite of God, like the yin and yang of each other. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says that Satan was created by God as all things were. And he was created to be a good spiritual being. But he fell into sin and he became evil. So now, along with a legion of other evil spiritual beings, his goal is to oppose God. He does that through deception and temptation. And what he wants is to devour you and me like a lion. So while we should not fear Satan, we fear only God, we should absolutely take him very seriously. He is our great enemy. And his powers of darkness have a much greater influence over the world and our lives than we realize. Paul says there's a spiritual war raging right now around us, and yet most Christians are ignorant to that. Jesus wasn't. We'll see just how often Jesus has spiritual battles in his ministry. So it makes sense that right to start out, to begin his ministry, that he would begin it with a showdown with his chief enemy. The devil attacked Jesus at his most vulnerable moment. Jesus, while fully God, was also fully man. So his hunger was real. And you can imagine how hungry he was after 40 days of no food. I, I fast for one meal. My lunch is a little delayed and I'm struggling. Right? This was 40 days. And this is when Satan brings his three best temptations. That's something to remember. It's often in your low points when you're hungry, tired, emotional, when Satan strikes. So let's look at each of those 
three temptations and how Jesus handles them. First temptation is really simple. Verse 3, the devil said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Notice the devil doesn't tempt Jesus to lie or steal or harm someone. He simply tempts him to take or to make food. Makes a lot of sense. He was really hungry. We know Jesus had the ability to perform miracles. Later, we'll see him perform miracles with food. So what's the big deal here? Why would it be a temptation for him to simply make some bread from a rock? He was, after all, the son of God. Why would it have been wrong for him to do this? This is a lesson for us in how Satan tempts. See, Satan's temptations are not always obviously sinful, but they're often much more subtle and sinister. Think back to the very first temptation and sin of mankind ever. Adam and Eve, similarly, they were tempted by Satan to eat. Again, they weren't tempted to lie or to steal or to kill, just to take a bite And yet their decision caused the entire downfall of humanity. That tells us that there's something deeper to Satan's temptation here. He's taking a good, normal human desire and he's twisting it and taking advantage of it. And he does the exact same thing to you and to me. Satan doesn't make us sin. He doesn't invent something out of thin air and throw it at you. But we give him plenty of material to work with in our own desires. Listen to how James explains it in James 1. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Whose desire? His own. Your own. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's our own desires that Satan uses against us. And those are not usually sinful desires at their core, but they're often good desires. For example, we desire comfort or peace. We desire a relationship or financial stability. We desire well-behaved children or a good job. Those are not bad desires. But Satan tempts us to make those desires bigger than they should be. He tempts us to put those desires above God, and that's when we fall into sin. This is so important to understand. The fight against sin does not start at the level of behavior. It starts at the level of the heart. This is why the Bible tells us to guard your heart. Don't let any desire become greater than your desire for the Lord. Or else you will load the very gun that leads to your execution. So Jesus, he recognized this isn't just about food and hunger. Satan wanted him to doubt God's provision to provide for himself instead of trusting in God. That's why Jesus answered like this, verse 4. It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes a verse from Deuteronomy where Moses was instructing the people before they went into the promised land. He was reminding them of how God provided for them with manna in the desert, but how ultimately that was a test to show them that they didn't just depend on bread, but on trusting in God's word. And Jesus used that same verse to fight the temptation. He says, look, food is not the most important thing. It's more important to obey God's word and to trust in him to provide. So I'm choosing to trust. And I want to pause right here and point out something we cannot miss. And that's the way that Jesus combats Satan. It's interesting. He didn't use any kind of like spiritual force to push him away or any kind of physical attack. He doesn't run. He doesn't try to out-reason him. 
How does Jesus fight back against the attacks of the devil? Each time it's through quoting memorized scripture. And notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, hang on a second. Uh, Let me just go grab my scroll. I know there's a, there's a verse in here somewhere. I just I got to find it. I'll get right back with you. I know I can, I can do something here. No, it's clear that Jesus has Scripture memorized so that he can bring it to mind when he needs it. And his example is one of many reasons why Christians have found great value all throughout church history in memorizing Scripture. Learning the Bible, being able to recite it by memory is a major key to fighting sin in your life. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. Look, memorizing scripture is not just about being able to quote a verse and look all spiritual in Sunday school and everything. It's like, oh, wow, he's smart. It's about storing it, hiding it in your heart, embedding it down deep so that when you get in a tough spot, God can bring it to mind for you like a lifeline. And those of you who have memorized Scripture know how true that is. God always seems to bring a verse to mind when you need it. This is why we have ministries like Awana, teaching our kids to memorize the Bible. It's why our adult discipleship groups include Scripture memory. Because if you're like me on your own, you will struggle to do it and prioritize it. Just being honest, if it were just me by myself trying to memorize Scripture... I might do it here and there, but I'd find excuses and shortcuts around it. That's why for the last nine or so years of my life, I've met weekly with a small group of men for discipleship. And a key part of it has always been memorizing Bible verses. So right now, every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., I show up at Sweet Tea's. Thank you, Lord, for coffee. (laughs) And I have to sit down with Tommy and Kevin, who are two of the most intimidating guys in this church, if you know them, you would laugh a little more. <laughs> Great guys. But I have to sit down and look them in the eyes, and I have to quote for them from memory our verse. I can't tell you how much that accountability helps me to know that I'm not alone in the fight for holiness, that I've got brothers by my side. It makes all the difference for me. So listen, if you want to be like Jesus, you should memorize Scripture like Jesus. Let's look at the second temptation. Verses 5 through 7, the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What's the temptation here? It seems to be a temptation to power. It says, Here's all the authority, all the fame, the prestige, the glory, it's yours. But again, there's something more subtle taking place here because we know Jesus is promised in the Bible to one day rule the world already. Here's what was prophesied concerning Jesus the Messiah in Daniel 7. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, that's Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him Jesus was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We know that came true right now. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father as Lord of all creation. And one day he will return. He's coming back to rule over a new heavens and a new earth. 
So what Satan promised here was already rightfully promised to Jesus by God. So what then was the temptation? It was a temptation to go around God's plan. Because God's plan for Jesus to receive authority over the world was through first suffering on the cross. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He says, In being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you see that? Therefore, God is highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was a plan there that first Jesus would be humbled and then exalted. But Satan was inviting Jesus to sidestep the cross to avoid the pain, the suffering, and to take a shortcut to God's promises. And we're often tempted in the same way. We too have promises from God. Promises that he'll take care of us, that he'll meet our needs and work things for our good, that he'll redeem our suffering. But we don't know when those promises will come to be, so we're tempted to take a shortcut to try to get there an easier way. We try to make our own plan and do things our own way. And how does that work out? <laughs> famous example of that in the Bible is a man named Abraham. God promised Abraham a son in his old age with his wife Sarah. But time went on and nothing happened. The promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. So what did Abraham do? Well, he took matters into his own hands. And he had a child with his wife's servant. That's the worst husband decision ever. He didn't trust in God's plan. He didn't trust in God's timing. And that's the key to this second temptation. Now, there's a fair question here on whether Satan could actually give Jesus authority over the kingdom of the world. Was he lying? Was he telling the truth? Was this even a real temptation? Well, it's likely that Satan, that what he says here is a mixture of truth and lie. That's how he usually does it. Satan is the father of lies, but Jesus tells us later that Satan does have some authority over the earth. He calls him the ruler of this world in John 12. Paul calls Satan the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. The devil doesn't have authority outside of God's authority. He can only do what God allows. But there is this evil, dark kingdom in this world which he does have sway. So there's an element of truth to this temptation. Satan could have possibly given him some authority. But it would come with a cost. The cost of worshiping the devil and forsaking the father. That's another important principle. When Satan tempts, he often drops in just a little nugget of truth. Think back to Adam and Eve. He told them, he said, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There was some truth to that. But that desire to be like God, that was the problem. Satan often tempts us by saying, hey, do this and it will make you happy. Or it will make you feel better. This is what you really want. If you do this, you'll be successful. You know you got to provide for your family. Come on, you deserve this. There's an element of truth there. Sin can be fun. It can make you feel good and happy for a time. But there's always a cost that far outweighs the benefits. Sin is never worth it. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew the cost of giving allegiance to Satan. It wasn't worth sidestepping the cross and abandoning the Father. 
So again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, verse 8, says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus was faithful to God no matter what. He would not forsake his mission. Here's the third and last temptation, verses 9 through 11. And he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, the temple was the the center of religious life for the Jews, the pinnacle. That was the highest point. And Satan, did you see, he kind of steps it up this time. He didn't just tell Jesus to, to jump, but Satan actually quotes the Bible to justify his temptation. He says, you know nothing bad's going to happen to you. You know what the Bible says. God's not going to let anything bad happen. You're the chosen one. It's written down. This is a good time to remind you that just because someone quotes a Bible verse doesn't mean their argument is true. Many cults are founded on a Bible verse taken out of context. So we should be cautious and study Scripture for ourselves, even when I Or another one of our pastors says something. Check it for yourself. I'm not saying I'm planning to start a cult or anything. (laughs) But my interpretation is not infallible. God's word is. So we need to make sure those who teach us God's word or use God's word in a book or a podcast or a video or whatever, make sure they're using it in the way God intends. Because even Satan knows scripture and he twists it for his own purposes. So what's the real temptation here? Why would Jesus even think about jumping off a temple and being miraculously saved? Well, we see what's going on here in his response. Verse 12, Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, there's a quote from Deuteronomy where Moses tells the people, don't test, don't presume upon God's protection. God has promised to protect his people. That doesn't mean you should force him to prove it. Trusting in God means trusting without needing a demonstration. We ever tempted in this way, you think? Do we ever put God to the test? Do we ever take one of God's promises and say, well, God said he would take care of me, so I'm going to go ahead and do something dumb. I remember as a kid thinking, hey, God promises to forgive those who confess their sins, so here's what I'm going to do. I'll just sin, and then I'll just confess it afterwards, and everything will be good. It's a flawless plan, but it's not quite how it works, is it? Look, don't test God's grace by sinning more. Don't test God's care by being reckless. Don't test God's existence by making a bribe or a deal. God, if you'll just get me out of this, I promise I'll be in church every Sunday. I'll be there this week if you'll just help me this one time. Please, look, don't do that. Jesus trusted God enough that he didn't need a test. He knew who he was. And Satan now knows who he was. And now we know who he was. And that's the ultimate purpose of this story. Uh, Listen to me, guys, and we'll, we'll land this plane. This story is a great example of how to fight temptation. But that's not the ultimate point. There's a lot we can take away and principles we can apply, as I've shared. But this is not a story about you. When you and I face temptation, it's unlikely we will ever be tempted by Satan himself in such a direct way. 
Unlike God, think about it. Satan's not present everywhere all the time. He's not sitting on every shoulder. He's limited to one person at one time, and you and I are really not that important, okay? (laughs) And we also don't have the salvation of the entire world riding on our response to his temptation. He's more than happy to send his minions after us. So again, while we can learn some things from the example of Jesus, yes, we do follow his life. The ultimate point of this story is not to help you sin less. Because the truth is, we've already been tempted and we've already blown it. We are sinners who already failed the test and gave into the temptation and we continue to do that every single day. Here's the ultimate point of this story and this is the only point we'll have today. Here it is. The faithfulness of Jesus means we have all we need. This is about proving that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of all creation. And it's because he was faithful here and faithful to the cross that we can be confident that he'll be faithful to us and that he'll give us all we need. We have forgiveness, we have salvation, we have life because Jesus passed the test. Jesus was faithful and therefore he can save us. That's the ultimate point. And we see that in a few details I want to come back to briefly. The first is the placement of this story in Luke's gospel. Luke places it right after the genealogy that traced Jesus all the way back to what person? To Adam. We talked last week about how Jesus was the second Adam. So do we see any similarities here between Jesus and Adam? Yeah, we see that both represented humanity. Both were tempted by the devil, and yet one failed and one succeeded. Paul said it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam and Eve, they faced the temptation of Satan, and they failed. They brought sin and death into the world. Jesus faced the temptation of Satan, and he obeyed. And he brought righteousness and life into the world. This is why God sent Jesus out into the wilderness, so that he might undo what man had done that he might be found faithful where we could not, and he was. The second Adam, the last Adam, passed the test. Here's the second detail we can't miss, and that's this story taking place after 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus quoted all three times from Deuteronomy, the book given to Israel, right after their 40 years in the wilderness. Again, there's a parallel that Luke wants us to see where Israel sinned in the wilderness, Jesus obeyed in the wilderness. Where Israel grumbled and complained, Jesus spoke the word of God. Where Israel tested God, Jesus trusted God. Where Israel was faithless, Jesus was faithful. Jesus did what no one else in humanity could do. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. And you and me can't do it either. Jesus alone faced down the devil, resisted his attack, trusted in God, and lived a perfect life. And it's because of that, because of his faithfulness, that we have all we need. The Bible says his righteousness, his perfect record, has been credited to our bank account. 
See, on the cross, Jesus took our sin and he gave us his obedience. That means what Jesus did in the wilderness, he did for us. He did it as our representative and his victory is our victory. So all of this means something very, very simple. You can trust Jesus. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. He did what the Bible says he's done. He has saved us and we can trust him. But it's more than that. The faithfulness of Jesus means we have all we need, not just salvation, but all that comes with it. Peace and joy and purpose and hope, we have it all. When we face trials and tests and when we face temptations, we can do so with confidence. We do not fight our sin from a place of defeat, but from a place of victory. We take on temptations knowing the battle's already won, that we're free in Christ, that we're no longer slaves to sin. So we can choose to obey and live for him. The faithfulness of Jesus means we have all we need. Because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago in that wilderness showdown with Satan, we lack nothing. We have everything in him, and we can trust him no matter what. Jesus passed the test. He proved himself to be the son of God. He's done everything for you. The only question left is, will you trust him? Let's bow our head in prayer.